Hi, Nancy. Hey, Shane. Hi. Hi. So we're going to get back to question time. I know you oh, love, I love question time. I know you love question time. If you were to lose power, say like in a blackout or something, but you could power one thing, not your phone, what would you use like electricity for? Like one thing. Well, this is silly. Well, that's the point. My electric toothbrush. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of those stupid things that you're like, I'll never get an electric toothbrush. And then you get one and you're like, this is pretty amazing. What's what's so amazing about it? Because you know what? I used to really brush my teeth very hard. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I guess I do everything with gusto. Gusto. And I did it so hard that my gums were really messed up and like really receding. And they're like, your teeth are going to fall out. (laughs) So you're... (laughs) This is so much better than anything I could anticipate it. So I so they said you should get an electric toothbrush because it does the right amount of, you know, pressure and whatever. It, it brushes it correctly. So it brushes the, you correctly. So in the apocalypse, if you have like one of those like tiny little like solar panels that'll charge one device, you're gonna charge your electric toothbrush and nothing else. This is a good thing to know. I know, sad. <laughs> Welcome to the American Geophysical Union's podcast about the scientists and the methods behind the science. These are the stories you won't read in the manuscript or hear in a lecture. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Nancy Bompy. And this is Third Pod from the Sun, Centennial Edition. All right. So so now we know that in uh, in a blackout, let's say, you're going to take your toothbrush with you. Or, or you're, like, you're gonna I could brush my teeth. I'll be the first in the zombie apocalypse to go. <laughs> so have you... my toothbrush. <laughs> have you, uh, but have you ever been in like a, like a big blackout or, or lost power for extent? I mean, we've all lost power, right. but like for extended periods. I guess the last big one was the derecho, 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 whatever that yes. was that happened. <laughs> I don't know how many years ago, about maybe six or seven years ago, maybe oh, now, no, or I w- eight years ago. Eight I was years living ago. here. It's so. like my first summer in DC. It was oh, okay. 110 degrees. Oh, nice. <laughs> It was insane. How how long did you do did you lose power for? At least three or four days, oh, I wow. feel. And it was so hot. So yeah. I just took cold showers and laid around and yeah, it was awful. People were like, you know, going to the mall was like the only place where you could like yeah. charge your phone and get air conditioning. Yeah, oh, it was wow. pretty awful. It was pretty awful. Yeah. So well, so okay, so it's something like a derecho, like natural hazards, things on the earth can cause blackouts. Did you know that also like the sun could potentially cause blackouts. Yes, space weather. I know. Well, we actually uh, had the opportunity to talk to someone who knows all about space weather and what exactly space weather is, I guess. <laughs> My name is Dolores Knip. I'm a research faculty member at the University of Colorado Boulder, the Smead Aerospace Engineering Sciences Department. And in my somewhat spare time, I'm the editor-in-chief for Space Weather Journal, which is an AGU publication. So space weather is the disturbances in the environment in which our satellites operate, our radio signals and communication signals propagate, and in which some humans, astronauts, work. But space weather has a way of kind of expanding and working its way all the way down to Earth. So for people in the space weather community, Dolores is a very big deal. Yes, very much so. It was really fun to talk to her. So she's dedicated a lot of her more recent work to studying kind of these historic space weather events, which we got to chat with her about. But I found out, and I had no idea, that she actually has a really fascinating background. When I graduated college, 
I wanted to be a meteorologist. I had trained for that and done education in that in that regard, but it was just at the end of the Vietnam War, and there were a lot of experienced meteorologists coming back from Vietnam, so someone with no experience really didn't have much of a chance to get a job. But the Air Force had openings sort of at the entry level for weather, and so I joined ROTC and the Air Force. I was going to do this for four years to pay off my student loans, and four years turned into 22. And all during that time, I was involved in either weather or space weather for the Air Force. So I had this sense that there were disturbances that people couldn't see that were going on and affecting military equipment and military operations, and I'd gotten that sense when I was a weather briefer at Cheyenne Mountain Complex in Colorado Springs. And I ended up pursuing that, trying to understand what was going on beyond the atmosphere. Were you, were you uniformed? I was uniformed. That's very cool. It turns out that the weather folks at any given base weather station, which was what it called at the time, were generally viewed as the scientists on base. <laughs> in many cases, we were pretty far from having any answers, but at least the training that you got in meteorology school gave you a sense of who you might contact or where you might go find an answer. And so I got asked some really strange questions like, what is dark? (laughs) The reason has to do with we had pilots who needed to get a certain number of daylight and night landings. And they were going just barely to the edge of night, so they wanted to know when it was technically dark. This would be this would be really cool, kind of being a, I mean, I guess on a base, but like anywhere and having your own, essentially like your own meteorologist. <laughs> yeah, you're right. right, your own personal weather right? person. Just be able to like walk down the hall, and be like, hey, <laughs> let's go. Yeah, I bet you that wouldn't get old or anything. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> So yeah, so wow, I didn't know all this about the Lord. No, this is this fascinating. Is, yeah, this is amazing. I guess now though we're going to get more into the space weather stuff. Yes. And if you've ever talked to anyone about ever. space weather, all these space weather <laughs> researchers who are who are have such interesting stuff to talk about, but they always mention without always. fail the Carrington event. So it was an event from a great sunspot that appeared on the solar disk in late August of 1859. There had been a concerted effort to draw sunspots, and there were astronomers drawing sunspots. Richard Carrington at the Kew Observatory in Britain would go out every cloud-free day, draw pictures of the projected sun, and make a record of the sunspots. And while he was drawing this particular sunspot, which he knew was complex, all of a sudden it just it just blossomed in white light, which when people talk about a white light flare, it is one of the most energetic processes. Usually the flares that we talk about, we're talking about in portions of the spectrum where humans' eyes do not see. But when a particularly energetic event will also appear in white light, and it's white enough to almost obliterate the dark spot. And he just could not believe what was happening. He went around the observatory trying to find somebody else to take a look at it, and I don't know that he did. I think there was no one else around. But interestingly enough, simultaneously at an observatory not too far away, another astronomer, uh, Hodgson, saw the same thing, and they ended up talking at a 
Royal Astronomical Society meeting or some similar type of meeting, comparing notes and going, wow, this really did happen. We're not, we, neither of us was hallucinating. And furthermore, what they found out was some number of hours later, about 19 hours later, there were huge disturbances at, at their magnetic equipment. And it was sort of the first time between tying those two things together and then recognizing that there were also auroral reports that were seen all the way down to Venezuela. They were seen in Mexico, Cuba, and I think we're just now starting. I don't know if we've actually gotten any records from the Southern Hemisphere. That was the beginning. So it was a very fast, what we call coronal mass ejection, just like the one in 72, maybe a shade slower. But the configuration of it was one that allowed the magnetic field from that bubble to actually be more geoeffective, or meaning that it was better able to interact with our magnetic field and make those very, very equatorward aurora. And of course, that meant that the entire world got to see the aurora. People who had never seen aurora in Mexico, for example, were seeing aurora. And that became a worldwide event. So people were making records of these, and we've just really not had the knowledge that we needed to dig into those records to start understanding how often these things happen. And that's one of the things I'm kind of concerned about now is I'm going, well, if people are starting to report these showing up every maybe 70 years when we thought they were 150, maybe we're a little bit more at risk than we think. And so, you know, that, as a scientist, that helps me go back and say, yeah, all of this historical work is relevant. Yeah, so I guess it's like, I mean, like a lot of science, like, you know, like climate science, like other types of science. I mean, understanding the historical context is super important for space weather. Right, right. I mean, and the Carrington event is a place where a lot of these things started, or at least our, our I guess, observations of them. Understanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But like I said, we needed to talk about the Carrington event to talk about a lot of her, her more recent work. And so we were chatting with her and it turns out she had written a story about this storm, this, this space weather event that occurred in 1967. And it came out and one of her colleagues from Australia actually sent her this email, really short email, basically said like, oh, so you know about this one. Have you heard about this other one? And it turns out there was this, this event in 72, there were these pilots flying flying over a harbor in North Vietnam, and they just started to see over two dozen sea mines just, like, exploding out of nowhere, unexplained. They could see them, like, from the plane. Wow, and this is during, the obviously, the Vietnam War. Yeah, yeah, yeah no. That's it, crazy. It was wild, and nobody really knew what the deal was, and that really piqued Dolores' interest, and so she started to dig. Well, we were near the end of the Vietnam War. We had been in Vietnam for a very long time, seven years plus, actually. President Nixon was trying to find a way to get the nation out of the Vietnam War and save some face. The number of Americans in Vietnam by Monday, May 1st, will have been reduced to 69,000. And the Navy had been telling both President Johnson and President Nixon that the one thing that absolutely needed to happen was that the war goods that were coming into North Vietnam had to be stopped in some way. That was the only way to really bring the hostilities to a halt. And the Navy told President Nixon that the way to do that was mine the harbors. 
And Nixon, President Nixon, wanted out of that situation badly enough that he finally gave permission. And I think you say give permission. Why would that be such an issue? Uh, sea mines have and and always will be, you know, something that you do with great thought because they can kill indiscriminately. But the way President Nixon worked this out was he said, we'll drop the sea mines in and give everybody 72 hours notice to clear out because we had the technology at that time to set the sea mines. And so everybody who was in a port that had been mined had the time to get out if they so chose. Some nations decided not to withdraw. Some were ships were perhaps disabled in some way. So there were a number of ships stuck in Haiphong Harbor during that time. And there were smaller harbors to the south that were also mined. So yes, there was, there was a political aspect of that. The geophysical aspect, which is what I would write about, was very interesting. I, I happened in the course of doing an internet search, come across an image of the sun from the day of the event, and I was completely taken by how intense the sunspot was. So this, the sun is an active magnetic star, rather well-behaved to many that we see out in the exoplanet world. But it, it does shed its energy in interesting ways. And one, ways, one way that it sheds its energy is to essentially wind its magnetic field up into knots, as you might think of really, really tightly winding a rubber band. You wind these knots up and then there will be an explosive release of energy. And that is exactly what happened. So the energy that came out of that particular sunspot was enough to fuel one of the largest flares that I believe we have seen since the Great Carrington event in 1859. And we did not know about that. That was not in any of records that had been generally available, but in the course of just searching the internet, I came up with information from Japanese scientists who had used the inability or the slowdown in our ability to propagate radio waves to essentially reverse engineer how strong that flare had been. And it pretty much goes along with the values from the spacecraft that we had up that saturated. And so we couldn't see from, you know, the, the monitoring spacecraft, but we could see by reverse engineering it's one of the, the biggest events. But not only does it send out all of that energy, which then immediately disrupts radio propagation, it sends out bubbles of magnetic field. And generally the magnetic field from the sun kind of streams out at a paltry 400 kilometers per second, which is supersonic, by the way. But this particular event, near as we've been able to, to backtrack, and many scientists have been involved in that, came in at close to 3,000 kilometers per second, averaging somewhere between 26 and 2,800 kilometers per second. It is the fastest event that we have on record, even faster than the Carrington storm. And it is that speed with which the magnetic field crushed into Earth's magnetic field that essentially generated the currents that created the magnetic field perturbations that were larger than the threshold for the sea mines. And there we have it. 
I just have a I just have a, a logistical sea mine question. Uh-huh. I don't know if you know this, you said they set them and then they have seventy two hours to mm-hmm. get out. What happens? You know what, what happens to a boat when it bumps up against like an unset sea mine? Think well, it doesn't even have to bump up. These were magnetically sensitive mines. Okay. The technology had developed so that a sea craft of any kind that had any kind of metallic hull would have an ambient magnetic field and it and the sensor in the sea mine would see that changing magnetic field go by and go, "Wow, that's a ship." What we have since been able to figure out is that these sea mines were set at a particularly low threshold because the embargo that was going on in the harbors was pretty effective and it was keeping the large ships out, but the North Vietnamese anyone still wants their goods, so they started sending small craft out to where the big ships were anchored. And no, not going to do that either. So they essentially adjusted the thresholds for a number of mines that had adjustable thresholds. And that's why these sea mines in particular blew up. So not all 11,000 of them, but 4,000, which is still substantial. But at the time, the Navy had no idea why. And they were going, oh, something's happening here. We don't know what it is. And if we're going to keep this embargo in place, we're going to have to replace all of those. But we don't want to replace until we know what happened. Were there any casualties when this happened? Were there? Nothing that the U.S. military has reported. But that is all I know. A lot of dead fish, I fear. So at that time, they didn't know what set the mines off. They had no idea. I mean, they probably like had speculation, but no, they had they didn't really know. And there's no like official answer out there right now. That's really why Dolores wanted to dig into it. Like, oh, this is probably it. So, so she has an answer, but it's not like U.S. military official. Huh? Yeah. So interesting. I know. So you mentioned also this 1967 event. Yes. So in a different way, she she also came across this in kind of a like a chance encounter. She learned about this other event that resulted in a potentially very bad outcome. The 1967 event was a little bit more personal for me, although it happened when I was in seventh grade. So it it wasn't immediately personal, personal, but the biggest impacts occurred in the decision-making process at NORAD's Cheyenne Mountain Complex in Colorado Springs or just outside of Colorado Springs. And I actually worked in that facility in the early 80s as an officer who was transitioning from doing weather support to transitioning to do space environment support. And there were occasional discussions that I would have with more senior military members where they would say that something happened in the late 1960s that causes us always to have this space environment support system going, but they would never tell me what it was. And it was only upon the death of the commander of that unit and a chance encounter with people who were just kind of memorializing him And they called him sort of the father of Air Force space weather. And I go, why would you give him that title? Mm -hmm. And again, it was a a short cryptic statement where someone said, well, you should talk to Colonel so-and-so. And so so I I did those kinds, I started those kinds of discussions, emailed, and I was actually able to find the duty forecaster for the day. 
And he told me it was a very rough day. That event came about because the sun does emit in radio. And we also do our reconnaissance, our monitoring on radio frequencies. We use radars to determine if something adversarial is coming over the polar cap. And we had, at that time in 1967, a set of radars. There were three of them called the Ballistic Missile Early Warning Radars and Ballistic Missile Early Warning System. And they operated on a radio frequency that Department of Defense believed would get some occasional static from the sun, but nothing very large. On that particular day, the sun increased its output in the frequency very close to those radars by two orders of magnitude. So what would normally be 300 units came out as 300,000 units. And it essentially jammed those radars. We were in the rise time of the Vietnam War, but more importantly, we were only 10 days out from what would become the six-day Arab-Israeli war, and the world was very, very much on edge. I believe that the leaders all the way up the military chain thought that things might just be dicey enough that the Soviet Union would attempt to do some kind of a strike. At least that, that was what had always been practiced in the war games, is that a way a strike, like a preemptive strike, would develop is it would start with the jamming of the radars. And so there it was. Fortunately, just a few months earlier, we had established in Cheyenne Mountain Complex the very first solar forecasting unit. And the person that I mentioned was the duty forecaster on the day. I believe had we not had that investment in educating people about the space environment and how variable it can be, we may not be here talking today. It was that close in terms of, were we going to launch our nuclear-laden aircraft to be ready for the nuclear-laden aircraft that we thought were coming, or the ICBMs? So I was actually going to ask about that, like, how close were we? Because I'm picturing every awful action movie I've seen where, Mm -hmm. like, they're literally, like, the keys are turned and the briefcases are open and they're, like, next to the button. Do Do we know that? What I have gotten from the weather forecasters or support people from the time, and I've talked to two, three of them, they were aware of pilots and crews who were sent to their aircraft told to start the engines and roll the aircraft out to the ends of the runway. That's close. That's way close. On the other hand, there was something about the space environment that actually probably, in its own bizarre way, calmed things down, and that is the radio propagation situation was so bad that at least some commanders thought that the aircraft might not be able to be called back. And so, rather than go... As, as I understand it, rather than launch, we held. And there were some very, very busy solar forecasters and commanders of solar forecasters furiously working to help command authorities understand what was going on. And they had seen how active the sun had been. Fortunately, the sun had produced just two days earlier a very major event. So this didn't just come out of the blue. These duty forecasters knew that the sun was very active. So, you know, these stories, Mm -hmm. 
have me thinking, Shane. <laughs> I don't, but I'm excited to find out. Uh, HBO miniseries. Oh! <laughs> Oh, a la Chernobyl. I know. We just like talked about Chernobyl recently. I love Chernobyl. I mean, I loved the who show. would play who would play Dolores. Oh, who would play Dolores? That's a really <laughs> like the researcher finding it out, and I know. then you have like the then you have like you know then it goes back in time to the actual event. This yeah, be it'd good. be fun. This like you could good. like narrate like she would be narrating over it and going yeah. back in time. Oh yeah. Oh HBO, if you are listening, <laughs> you can. We you, got something for you. Yeah. Um. Just just. Find us at AGU. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's all from Third Pod for the Sun for our Centennial Edition. Thanks so much, Shane, for bringing us mm-hmm. this story. And also our former intern, Jonathan Griffin, helped out with this. Yes. And of course, thanks to Dolores for sharing her work with us. And so this podcast was produced by me and mixed by Colin Warren. We would love to hear your thoughts on our podcast. Please rate and review us. And you can always find new episodes on your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. And be on the lookout for more Centennial episodes, which we love doing. And as well as our regular episodes. All right. Thanks all. And we'll see you next time.